Welcome to the Masters of Data podcast, the podcast that brings a human to data. And I'm your host, Ben Newton. What better guest to have on the Masters of Data podcast than the author of a book called Big Data, and who just recently published a book called Reinventing Capitalism in the Age of Big Data. Victor Mayer Schumberger is the Professor of Internet Governance and Regulation at Oxford. His research focuses on the role of information in the networked economy. Earlier, he spent 10 years on the faculty of Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. We talked about his new book and the concept of data-rich markets. I think you'll like it. So without any further ado, let's dig in. Welcome, everybody, to the Masters of Data podcast, and I am very excited about our guest today. He is an author. He is a professor. He is a speaker all around the world. Victor Mayer Schoenberger, welcome to the show. Thank you, Ben. Thank you for having me. We're especially excited because you're the professor of Internet Governance and Regulation at the Oxford Internet Institute, and among other things, you've written a uh, couple books that are of very much interest to me, and I think particularly to this audience. And you you uh, wrote the book called Big Data a few years ago, and just recently wrote your um, your newer book about you know how big data is changing our economy and actually reinventing capitalism, which I think is just, as soon as I saw that, I knew I wanted to talk to you. So I'm really excited we were able to make this work. Sure. I'd, I'd be excited to engage in a conversation with you. These are very important topics and we must talk about that. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think you've got some really big ideas in a book, which I'm, I'm excited to talk through. But, you know, as we always do when we get started on the podcast, you know, I really like to understand why people are where they are like what's what's your what's your story and in particular you know the research i was doing before we talked i think you have a you know really interesting background so i'd love to hear you know how did you end up where you are now you know talking about big data and government and uh you know um at, at oxford i mean wh what brought you to that point well the short answer is good fortune but the longer answer is that i had two careers and in the past, one was I, I had a software firm, sold it, got another software firm. So I'm a bit of a serial entrepreneur in, on the uh, software side. And then at the same time, got involved in law and public policy, spent 10 years at the faculty at Harvard doing public policy and the high-tech sector. And since 2010, am at the faculty of Oxford University uh, doing the same thing. And so I've always been really interested in data and information and, and how we use data and how it changes our society, changes eco the economy, changes the institutions that are so central to what we are as a society. And that's where the book Big Data came from, and the more recent book about reinventing capitalism. So in a way, in hindsight, it looks like a straight path, but there were a lot of dead ends and a lot of twists and turns and a lot of good fortune on the way. That makes the more interesting story. You know, when, when I was looking back at your background, Victor, it's like, you know, because when, when, I, when I originally saw the book title, Reinventing Capitalism, Big Data, I'm like, okay, this is a very ambitious book. And I, I thought that was great. And then, you know, looking back at your background, I mean, you really do have a, you know, fascinating background to arrive at that. Because, I mean, even when you, as someone you're younger, participating in the International Physics Olympiad, you know, Young Programmers Contest, so you, you've got that background, uh, you know, understanding the the techno the technology side plus 
law and economics. So it, that does seem like that puts you in a good place where you're combining a lot of these disciplines to come at this problem from a very different perspective, which is which is great. Yeah, I hope so. I guess I was a nerd before we were called <laughs> nerds. Um, <laughs> I, I still remember the times I, when I started at around the age of 14 or 15 to, to hook up to the internet. I did it with an acoustic coupler an old-fashioned, plain old telephone where, where I put the receiver into the acoustic coupler and we had 300 bits per second of transmission speed. That was very different, but fun. No, oh, that's cool. I don't think I even got a chance to do that. I think my first one was an actual modem. That's pretty cool. So, I mean, a big part of what I think is so interesting about what you're talking about now is I hear people throw around the, the term big data a lot you hear it get misused. I mean, I even say this been kind of overused in a lot of ways over the last few years, but then what attracted to me to a lot of stuff you've been doing, particularly, you know, when you first wrote the the book about big data and what you're talking about now is you, you seem to have taken a more comprehensive, more in-depth idea of what big data is. So I'd love for you to talk about what you actually mean by big data and what that actually, you know, how you define that when someone asks you. Sure. For a lot of people, big data is maybe a tool to do what we're already doing, but just faster or better or more efficiently. And uh, to me, big data is far more than that. Big data is, is an opportunity for us to get a new perspective on reality, a new look at the world. Um, it's a new lens at reality that we didn't have before. And it's not the absolute number of data points that really matter, but our ability to capture comprehensively a particular phenomenon in data uh, that we're interested in so that we are not just looking at a small sample of data of a particular phenomenon, but really something that is sort of approaching at least uh, close to all or of the data that can be captured about a specific phenomenon. And that enables us to, to see detail uh, and to see connections that with a small sample of data, as in the small data world, we just couldn't see. Whether it's our ability to identify illnesses such as skin cancer, or whether it's our ability to better see what pedagogical methods work for, for, for children in education, or whether it's uh, how cars drive themselves. But it's really the kind of insight that we gain out of comprehensive um, amounts of data. And that can be millions of data points or billions of data points, but it really needs to capture the essence of the phenomenon. That makes a lot of sense. And one idea that was connected to that, which you know definitely really captured me as I was looking at what what you've been talking about and what you've been researching and, and writing in these books, you, you talk about the concept of a, of a data-rich market. And I, I would admit that I hadn't really thought about big data that way and, and how in the concept of exactly how it's, how it's penetrating the market. So maybe talk a little bit about that. I mean, when you, when you say data-rich markets, well, what do you actually mean? Let me start out by saying there's a lot of debate right now about data being the new oil that is a new, very powerful, valuable resource. But I think that's way too short a, a view because that suggests that our economy stays the same. The only thing that changes is that we are not trading in oil anymore. We are trading and transacting in data. And so that the uh, entire economic institutions and processes, they, they all stay the same. It's just a different resource that we are transacting, namely data. And, and that, I think, is fundamentally far too short-sighted. The recent book really argues that thanks to data, the way we transact on the markets, the way markets work, changes. 
And when we think about a market and how a market works, it's it's really about helping people to coordinate with each other so that two people who have complementary preferences and, and needs can find each other, transact and exchange goods or services. But for that to work, we need uh, a marketplace where a lot of transaction partners can be found. And we need some way where people can find each other. We need a matching process. Uh, the market does that pretty well, but for the market to work, a lot of information needs to be available on the market about other people's offerings and preferences. And we need to then take all of that information, each one of us in the marketplace, and make a decision about what we buy or with whom we transact. And that was way too much for us humans to deal with in the past. So we kind of condensed it down. We, we used a shortcut. And that shortcut, that condensation process was that we would, rather than communicating everything about our preferences, we just condense everything into price and exchange price information. And there is even Nobel Prizes you know, being awarded for emphasizing the importance of price uh, and that price is sort of the, the grease that makes the traditional market work. But price is just um, a crutch. It's not particularly good to condense everything into a single figure and then exchange a single figure because a lot of detail gets lost. And so traditional markets work, but they're not ex- extremely efficient. Um, and and that's what we see. You know, we, we buy stuff because we, we think it's cheap, but we don't really need it because we just overemphasize the importance of price compared to other qualities and uh, we don't look at our preferences very well because it just overwhelms our cognitive capabilities. Comparing price is just so easy. We're socialized in doing that, so we're focusing very much on price traditionally. But we see now a new kind of market coming up, and um, marketplaces where we have much more information rather than just price available. And that means we can find exactly what we're looking for, uh, whether it's booking platforms, you know, from kayak to booking.com, whether it's car sharing platforms like Blah Blah Car, uh, whether it's classic e-commerce platforms like Amazon, these are all marketplaces where we, thanks to data, have a much better chance of finding exactly what we're looking for. And that makes these kind of markets far better than traditional markets, price-based markets. And so a lot of people talk about platform economy. I can't hear that word anymore because platform doesn't say much about what's going on. What's really going on is that these are marketplaces where we exchange so much rich data that we really find what we need. And that's why we like the market so much. There's a reason why people go to Amazon. It's not because we are forced to uh, or because Jeff bribes us or because it's the cheapest place. It's because we easily find exactly what we're looking for. And that's why data-rich markets have such a leg up compared to traditional price-based markets. And that's why we see them come up, whether it's, you know, Amazon or whether, uh, or whether it's Uber or Airbnb or, or blah, blah, car or kayak. Um, think also of, um, of Apple. Apple's app store is nothing but a, a data-rich market that makes recommendations about what kind of apps uh, we might want to look at. Um, and, and, and that helps us find what, in, you know, in this huge app uh, universe, uh, some of the apps that we really like and cherish. Um, that's the kind of marketplace that really helps humans find each other and coordinate and is so much better than what we had so far. That does make a lot of sense. And I mean, I think 
A couple of things stuck out to me on that because, you know, particularly when you talk about, um, you know, Amazon or Apple or any of these companies that are kind of at the forefront of this, you know, if you look back big data of a few years ago, I mean, there was a lot of, you know, high expectations and then, you know, it didn't always pan out. And a lot of it, it didn't seem to pan out because, you know, these companies were collecting massive amounts of data, but then they couldn't take advantage of them. And there, and there were a couple of things that, you know, stuck out to me reading how you were describing this is it seems a lot of what you were talking about in terms of these companies being able to generate these data rich markets. It was about, you know, use a, the concept of a, a data ontology, like a data structure class, I, you know, I was thinking classification, tagging, metadata, you know, basically organization of the data. It seems like if I understood you correctly, that a big part of being able to leverage this data is being able to classify, organize it and present it in a way that makes these transactions work. Am I understanding that right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, understanding it right. If I think about how my students go about booking a hotel room in a city, they go on one of those platforms and then they select the kind of features that they want from a from a hotel, like free Wi-Fi, like some bar scene close by, uh, maybe some public transport close by. And then they look at the reviews. They, they, they look at um, the area through Google Street View. And only relatively late in the game, they actually look at price. Um, and so price is not just the defining category anymore. It's just one of many categories in a decision in a decision process. Uh, for all of that, you need to have a lot of data and you need to be able to categorize it. And when you look at the e-commerce landscape like 15 years ago or so, there was eBay and there was Amazon and eBay was bigger than Amazon. And today, of course, Amazon is the 500-pound gorilla, and, and, and eBay is much, much smaller. Why is that? Well, because on eBay, you had lots and lots of goods, but f- being able to find exactly what you're looking for was much harder on eBay than it was on Amazon. And it's this kind of easily finding through uh, filters and so forth what you're looking for that really differentiates one marketplace from the other. And Amazon, very, very early on, also built-in recommendation features, a recommendation engine uh, that supposedly accounts for a third of Amazon's revenues right now. And that is because it works. It just provides us with recommendations that, that that are pretty good. Of course, we laugh once in a while about a stupid recommendation that we receive. But more often than not, we get good recommendations and we transact based on those. Well, and, you know, and a, and a question about that, too, you know, when I was thinking about the, you know, kind of a classification, it seems partly what you're referring to is as well. I, I've heard this term called the analytics economy as well. And I mean, I just think it's, it's coming from a different perspective, but I think it's getting back at that core issue is that, yeah, you can have all this data, but how are you actually going to leverage that? So, I mean, how do you see the kind of balance between, well, I guess you could just classify a bunch of stuff, but if you don't actually have a way of, of actually processing that, and I mean, it, it, I guess what I'm fundamentally getting at is like, what's the role of some of the new advances in, you know, machine learning and AI and, you know, this algorithms in general compared to just the classification itself, you think? We can now use artificial intelligence not just to help us classify data that's about a particular product into certain categories, but we can actually use our, our machine learning now to come up with better ontologies, that is, better classification schemes. And there's a real 
there's a real gold rush in this particular field. There's startup companies that that, that, that come up with new ways. And, and of course, every big player in the e-commerce field is, is gobbling up those startups because being able to come up with better ontologies, being able to come up with better classifications, faster and easier ways to classify new products is paramount, especially when you are a large marketplace with millions of products for sale. And, and when your customers want more and more information, think about an, an e-commerce market for clothes, for apparel. You know, you need pictures there. You need to be able to perhaps even take the picture and derive a 3D model from it so that you can put them on a mannequin and see how it looks and sort of combine them. All of that requires a lot of data that's uh, correctly classified. But that's just one part of the coin. The other is, of course, that you need artificial intelligence and machine learning to then, out of all this data, help in the matching process, help bring two transaction partners together, tell me what kind of product I really should look at. And for that, you know, more data just trumps less data. If you have a lot of data about my preferences, you are able to find what I'm looking for. It's like if you have a personal shopper and that personal shopper knows you very well, that personal shopper is going to be of real help to you compared with a, a, a sales person that doesn't know you at all and just may suggest the three standard products. Yeah, I think that's pretty compelling, and and uh, and it it, make, it makes a lot of sense because I've I've even said this a couple of times myself. Is it, it it seems to be that I mean that's where the investments are going for these these companies right now is finding better ways to. I mean I've called it personalization before, and I think the way you describe it makes makes a lot of sense. It's it's basically how are how are you understanding the participants in this transaction to make it you know basically be a more advantageous exchange. I guess would be the right way to say it. We're talking a lot about Amazon. We mentioned, you know, Google and, you know, you, you, you'd you have ones like Facebook and things like that all in the same breath, Apple. I mean, we're talking about a lot of very dominant companies, companies that have managed to, I think, take advantage of what you just, you're just talking about, you know, particularly Amazon and Google and you know, Facebook. You call them superstars in your in in your book. And, and I think there's a, particularly in the events over the last, you know, year or two, I think we've seen it, you know, that's not always a good thing. And it, it seems like um, you're you're coming from that perspective as well. That it's not necessarily a good thing to have these companies that are so dominant. So, so talk a little bit about that. I mean, how do how does that affect this data rich economy that you're talking about? Well, so here is the interesting conundrum that, or the tension that you you point at. On the one hand side, these data rich markets are phenomenal. They're great. They're vastly better than the traditional markets in trying to find us what we're looking for. But a fundamental feature of the market is that there, there's decentral decision-making, that every market participant, every consumer makes his or her own decision about what to purchase or not purchase. The problem is that these companies that now run data-rich markets, think of Amazon. Amazon is not a traditional firm. It's not a traditional company. It's really a company that runs a global marketplace, a global online marketplace that's data-rich. And so when you look at that data-rich marketplace, it provides consumers with good matches. But when you look more closely, you see that every third dollar spent by a consumer on Amazon uh, is spent based on a recommendation that Amazon makes. And so that means the decision-making in the market isn't necessarily decentral anymore. It's Amazon's recommendation engine that tells a third of 
the people or at that that sort of influences a third of the transactions. And that means there is more and more a concentration of decision-making uh, in these marketplaces. And, and that's very worrying. Why? Decentral structure of the market is really good because it makes the market robust. It makes it less vulnerable. If somebody in the marketplace makes a stupid decision, buys something that he shouldn't buy, he's hurting, but the market isn't hurting. But suppose the Amazon's recommendation engine has a deep, um, deep flaw built into it. Nobody knows it. Not even Jeff Bezos knows about it, but it's a deep flaw and it makes a mistake, a slight mistake with every recommendation. Then we all make the same mistake and that brings not just harm to one or two individuals, but to a third or half or more of all the shoppers on Amazon, that may bring down the entire marketplace. It's a single point of failure. And the problem is that if you have a marketplace where there is a single decision maker, then you don't have a market anymore. You have a planned economy. And the danger of Amazon is that it looks like a marketplace, but it's not nothing more than approaching a planned economy. And that should worry us. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and one thing you, um, you kind of touched upon there as well is, is, is it feels like over the last particularly couple of years because of some big stories about, you know, data privacy and things like that, that there is a, a more of an awareness now that these marketplaces, you know, be it marketplaces for, I, I don't know, like, you know, social interaction, like on Facebook or products with Amazon aren't always fair. So there's a, that it can be, that it can be biased, and that these kind of unconscious or even conscious biases, but a lot of times unconscious biases work their way into the system. And it, it seems like part of what you're you're getting at as well. I mean, that seems like that's going to be very likely to happen when you have these concentrated points of power within these 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 markets. Because, you know, if, if Google's the one designing, you know, face detection algorithms that would, uh, you know, be used to detect and, and do things on your behalf, and it's in some portion of the population is being detected as, you know, apes that's not you know it's not a good thing how do you think about how bias is creeping into this and how dangerous it is well we all know that because machine learning is data driven is based on learning data all of the biases and the learning data of course get reflected in the algorithm that comes out of that learning process so in that sense machine learning is capturing all of the inherent biases of us humans but it could get worse. And that is because of that single point of failure. Just think about Facebook and what we heard uh, over the last two years. Facebook uses machine learning to tell us what kind of newsfeed uh, articles we should read, what kind of posts we should read. And that's a, um, a machine learning process that's data-driven. Now, Russian trolls and companies like Cambridge Analytica and others have helped hackers to essentially weaponize the Facebook structure, the Facebook platform, to provide us with information that shapes our thinking one way or the other. It essentially, um, it helped 
Facebook become a biased information provider. Um, that only works if you have a single point of failure. If you know that only works if everybody is getting the news from the same source. And if that is Facebook, and if that is an algorithm that is fed on data, and if I know what data I can feed it so that it creates the sort of bias that then leads to a biased outcome, a biased algorithm, then I can essentially weaponize Facebook to harm or bring down democracy. Hmm. Yeah, and that's a, <laughs> I don't mean the way you describe it, it's even more, even more scary than I would have thought. Yeah, I think it's that, that whole idea of, of how that, because in some sense too, that, you know, people build algorithms. So even the, even the algorithms that are being built, you know, you've got bias in the, the data, you've got bias in the algorithms, and you got people actually trying to misuse these, you know, data exchanges to, you know, for nefarious ends. I mean, it's it's a pretty scary world in some sense. I mean, it's both amazingly, there's some, you know, amazing horizons that we can actually reach, amazing things we could do, but it's also very scary, some of the some of the downside of it. So how do you, how do you think we as a society, I guess, in general, actually get around this? I mean, how do, how do we, what's the right way to approach this problem so we can actually make the data-rich markets work? Because I think, as you say, they're, they're here to stay. So how do we make them work? Right. To me, the, the the option isn't to keep the data to myself, to not join any of those markets, because actually that means that I'm getting the short end of the stick. I don't get good matches. I don't get good products. I pay more for them, and, and I don't get what I, what I want. The f- future, I think, cannot be in being a digital recluse and harking back to uh, times of ignorance, but really to try and make sure that the data isn't as concentrated. If data is valuable, then it should be spread more evenly. And that is why in the book we suggest one way out of that is to mandate that those large digital superstars share some of the data that they have, of course, anonymized with smaller startups so that, for example, we could go on Amazon and shop on Amazon, but we wouldn't just have Amazon's recommendation engine available. There could be other recommendation engines from startups and from from, from, from other sources, and I could choose what, I, what I'd like. I could pay a small monthly fee and get the consumer report recommendation engine that would be less biased, perhaps, than, than the one from Amazon, and therefore uh, ensure that there isn't such a concentration of informational power that then influence purchasing and market transactions. And we can do that by spreading the data more evenly and making sure that there isn't that kind of a concentration of data among a few superstar firms. Well, if I'm understanding you right, I mean, partly, am am I right to think that there's somewhat of a parallel to, I don't know, the late 19th century, early 20th century, where you had that kind of the Gilded Age and these large, the the trust that came about, and there was kind of this concentration of economic power and industrial power that allowed them to control prices, and then we had to we had to have a lot of this antitrust regulation. So is, is we're kind of in the same spot now? You think in the information age? Yeah, and 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 there's there's so many examples. Uh, the antitrust legislation that came out uh, in the early 20th century, as you are referring to, as a, as a good example. Patent laws are as another good example. Patents give those that make great inventions a temporary exclusion right. Uh, for, for, for a temporary period of time. But in order to get that exclusion right, you need to 
be completely transparent about your invention. So once that time is lapsed, everybody else can look at your drawings, can look at your description of the process, and can then benefit from that process. That's the kind of spreading knowledge or spreading insight uh, that we as a society have done uh, all along. In fact, even you know, just about 10 years ago, when Google bought a large travel company called ITA, the Department of Justice said, you can do that, but if you do that, you need to let others, including competitors like Microsoft, access the data that you just purchased, because otherwise there is an unfair concentration of data uh, that you have. So making data be accessible to, to more parties, spreading it more evenly in the economy isn't something new. Uh, it's there because it enables us, and it has been there for hundreds of years in the t- case of patents, over a hundred years in the case of antitrust. It's there because it helps us keep the markets competitive and innovation going. And and in particularly from where you're at with your title, where you're at at Oxford, you know, Internet Governance and Regulation, so you you clearly are having conversations. I would I would guess about in and actually have an eye on how this is changing in the world right now and what governments are doing. I mean, do you have a feeling that that our you know kind of governments and around the world are actually taking this seriously and and moving forward to do this, or do you think there's still a lack of recognition of the problem? What do you see? No, I see um, a, a, a lot of governments taking note of this. I spoke with the European Commission. They're interested. I know that the Dutch government is interested. The German coalition government, the, the one of the coalition parties, the Social Democrats, uh, have data sharing as their as a key element in their platform. In Britain, this is an idea that has been put forward. The uh, European Council has suggested that the digital superstars are forced to let other companies access some of the data and are pushing in that direction. So this is clearly something that's very heavily debated right now. And, and I'm, I'm sure we'll see more action in that policy arena throughout the world in the coming years. One last question for you, particularly on the international stage, is that I think there's a lot of talk sometimes that there's going to be a, maybe in the more negative light, they would call it an arms race around artificial intelligence. But I mean, there's an, there's an idea that there's a, you know, particularly, you know, in, in, in China, you know, versus, you know, what's what's going on in, you know, Europe and, and uh, United States around, you know, the new technologies and trying to race to that next set of technologies. But I, you know, after... Talking to you and listening to you, I wonder if it's really going to be a race about a technology, not a race about data, and what that would actually mean for you know this concept of data-rich markets and for you know our, the future economy. What what do you think? Does that am, am I right to to think that that might be the case? Or yes, I I think it, in part it is about technology. It's about the better tools and the better algorithms, but perhaps even more importantly, it is about access to data, and so. I strongly think that the economy that enables startups and smaller and larger companies to have access to data so that they can then use the data in their machine learning attempts, that will produce innovation, that will produce new insights, and that will produce not just economic growth, but hopefully also a digital dividend for society itself. Take self-driving cars. The more data you have, the better the car 
can learn how to drive itself. So obviously, we want as much data as we can in order to have really good self-driving cars. And therefore, an entire economy like Europe and European car makers would actually benefit greatly from being able to pool the data that they have or to share the data that they have about their self-driving car attempts just to have more and more data available from which to learn and which to use to train their systems. Mm. Yeah, well, no, that makes that doesn't make sense. Last question for you: What's next? And where, where are you kind of thinking about and 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 building your plans to do next? Well, what's next is thinking about what's essential for us to preserve for humans. If we have such good data-rich markets and and digital assistants that that help us in human decision-making, whether it's transaction decisions on the market or or other decisions, what role is there for humans? And there's a lot of talk about the importance of creativity and soft skills and, uh, and, and our ability to, to, to be emotional. And, and that's all fine, but I do think that there should be more than that. And to come up with some really good ways by which we humans can remain relevant, for example, by, by remaining in the loop of decision-making is really, I think, the next big debate that's coming our way. Hmm. I like that. That really does seem to be a, a theme I see across a lot of different areas. I'm excited to see uh, what you do with that. Well, Victor, thank you again for, for coming on the podcast. I think this was an awesome conversation and i um, excited to continue to follow new books, new ideas that you put out there. Thanks for taking the time. Thank you, Ben. Masters of Data is brought to you by Sumo Logic. SumoLogic is a cloud-native machine data analytics platform delivering real-time continuous intelligence as a service to build, run, and secure modern applications. SumoLogic empowers the people who power modern business. For more information, go to sumologic.com. For more on Masters of Data, go to mastersofdata.com and subscribe. And spread the word by rating us on iTunes or your favorite podcast app.